it's safe, it's completely non-infectious, it has no alive virus, and it's non-integrating, it has no potential for infection. I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is a March 19th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thanks for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objectives are to describe the current status of vaccination against SARS-CoV-2 and describe the clinical consequences of currently circulating variants. This educational activity is supported by independent medical educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Eli Lilly and Company, as well as in-kind support by DKB Med LLC. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. And with us today, we have Dr. Lisa Samen, Professor of Pediatrics at Columbia University Medical Center and Hospital Epidemiologist at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Dr. Samen is also the Program Director for E-Cystic Fibrosis Review COVID-19 Special Edition. This newsletter and podcast analyzes the current literature investigating if cystic fibrosis increases the chances of more severe disease and if the high degree of adherence to normal cystic fibrosis care is protective. What does the evidence say and how are these findings affecting clinical practice? Dr. Seaman also speaks directly with frontline clinicians about their experiences maintaining patient care in a disrupted healthcare system. Cystic fibrosis and COVID-19, the data in the real world, available at eCysticFibrosisReview.org. Dr. Seaman, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. COVID-19 has had an absolutely staggering global caseload. And I know you're all familiar with this. this. These data are from the WHO. But what really haunts me personally is that the Americas, which include, of course, the United States, shown in yellow, have absolutely the highest case rates. But it definitely looks like we're making progress, as you can see, that the curve is um, starting to decline, which is absolutely wonderful. And a lot of my optimism comes not only from these declining case counts and deaths, but also because of um, increasing vaccinations. These data are from the CDC's website, and the top part of the figure shows the progress made in the United States. So you can see that over 37 million people have been fully vaccinated and have received um, their second dose of Pfizer or Moderna vaccination. But I'll remind you that the total population of the United States is nearly 332 million. So that represents only a little over 11%. I wanna contrast that to the global progress. And you can see that while 
many, many more million doses have been delivered, um, that only represents a little over 1% of the world's population. And if COVID-19 has taught us anything, it's that this is a truly global pandemic that requires a global effort to prevent. So very briefly, um, I'm just gonna talk about the family of coronaviruses. And um, there are actually four common human coronaviruses responsible for URIs. And the figure there on the right shows some data that we generated from our medical center. And you can see that there are different curves, that different viral types predominate in different years. And um, then they seem to go away sometimes and then reemerge. Then the more significant coronaviruses start with SARS-CoV-1, which was um, emerged in 2002 and was responsible for um, a very high mortality rate and then miraculously disappeared. MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus, another coronavirus, emerged in 2012, and that still causes sporadic cases. And then finally, of course, the virus that's responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic, SARS-CoV-2. And I bring this up because a lot of the reason that we've made so much progress at understanding the pathophysiology of SARS-CoV-2 and, and the importance of the spike protein comes from our former experience with SARS-CoV-1 and MERS. So why have we made so much progress in vaccination? Well, we've been able to harness the molecular understanding of SARS-CoV-2 pathogenesis that I just alluded to on the previous slide. And this turns into the, our understanding of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein that I'm sure you are all familiar with. The spike protein is the major virulence factor of um, SARS-CoV-2. And what it does is its receptor binding domain, so the part of the virus, the part of the spike protein, um, recognizes the ACE2 receptor on human cells and allows the virus to bind and enter human cells. So this is the major antigen. And this is the antigen that the monoclonal antibody therapies have been raised against. And this is also the essence of the COVID vaccines that we'll talk about in a little bit, but it's also the site of the variants. And so um, modern vaccine technology, as you know, has taken advantage of the sequence for this spike protein to create both the messenger RNA vaccines and then most recently the Janssen vaccine, which is um, the spike protein DNA contained within a non-replicating non-human adenovirus vaccine. So I'm sure that uh, this is a review for many of you, um, but the two messenger RNA vaccines that we have available in the United States through the FDA's emergency use authorization are produced by Pfizer and Moderna, and they're remarkably similar. Um, the messenger RNA represents the blueprint for making the protein, and again, it's the spike protein. And it's safe. It's completely non-infectious. It has no alive virus and it's non-integrating. It has no potential for infection. It doesn't interfere with our DNA. It never even gets into the nucleus. 
it's naturally degradable. Um, we believe that the messenger RNA lasts in our bodies only for a day or two after we've been vaccinated. And um, there's no anti-vector immunity, um, which is something that um, could be of concern for certain patient populations from um, a viral vector. So what the figure shows you is this is a very familiar image of a coronavirus. Um, you'll note these little tufts, which give it this characteristic crown appearance, which is corona, as you know. And so the messenger RNA sequence is basically packaged in a little lipid bubble. And um, when we are vaccinated, that um, lipid bubble uncoats and the RNA enters into our cells and then our cells um, take that messenger RNA and convert it to the protein. And then the cell types actually display the protein. This is our human cells that are representing our host immune response. And we make antibodies to that protein that is the spike protein. And we also, um, the B cells and the T cells are working together in our body to make our host immunologic response. So that if we were to encounter the live virus, we would have this army at the ready that would be able to protect us from getting infected and getting ill. Now the Janssen vaccine, so Janssen is a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson, is a non-replicating adenovirus A26 vector. The A26 um, adenovirus was selected in part because in the human population, it's a relatively rare virus, so there's very little antibody to this virus pre-existing in the human population. And it's important to know, and you may not know this, but this is the technology that has been utilized for a very effective Ebola virus vaccine. There are currently two smoldering Ebola virus outbreaks in Guinea and the, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And this vaccine is being very effective at preventing um, spread. So we have human experience that's very, very important to recognize. What this technology does is it, it has within the adenovirus the DNA for the spike protein. The adenovirus binds to the host cells, it uncoats, the DNA enters the host cells, gets converted to messenger RNA, and then the rest of the cascade is what we just went through. Spike protein is made and we have an immunologic response. There is another potential advantage to the adenovirus vector in that the adenovirus itself may potentiate the immune response. So here's a quick um, vaccine primer that I'm sure again is um, familiar to all of you. So the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has two doses um, that are utilized 21 days apart. And this vaccine has one advantage in that it was studied and hence authorized in people who are 16 years of age and older. And for those of us that deal with pediatric populations, that means that we can vaccinate 16 and 17 year olds. Um, in the clinical trials, there were over 43,000 participants, and it was shown to have 95% efficacy. The Moderna vaccine um, is given every 28 days and has emergency use authorization for people who are 18 and older. And this was studied in over 30,000 um, participants and has 94% efficacy. The Janssen vaccine is a one-dose vaccine. 
um, which is really um, quite advantageous. It is authorized for people who are 18 years of age and older and was studied in 39,000 people. It had 66% overall efficacy, but I wanna point out that it had 93% overall efficacy for um, severe illness, meaning hospitalization, and 100% efficacy against preventing death. So we are often asked, which is the best vaccine? And there is absolutely no way to compare these vaccines. They were conducted in different countries. They were conducted, um, the Janssen vaccine was conducted when the variants were much more widely circulating. And so the best vaccine is the vaccine that you are eligible for and offered. So how are we doing? These are numbers that were um, um, available on the CDC website on March 15th. Thus far, there have been 143 million doses distributed and 111 million doses administered. I know we're all frustrated at the pace of um, distribution and administration, but that has been improving. 72 million people have received at least one dose. And as I mentioned before, 39 million people are fully vaccinated. I wanna just um, note this one dip that occurred here when we had all of those adverse weather storms um, this winter. So um, the system is very, very sensitive to um, things that occur in nature. So something to really remember, but clearly um, we're doing much, much better and continue to vaccinate gigantic numbers of people. Let's now turn to the variants. And um, the data for the variants is emerging every single day. Um, I've given this talk before and just updated it. So um, if you're interested in this subject, you're, it's really um, you know, important to review the CDC website and um, other publications. But I'll say at the onset that genetic mutations for viruses occur all the time. We're all familiar with influenza vaccine and um, how we have to get vaccinated every year. That's because the influenza virus mutates. Um, what happens with um, different mutations is that some become dominant and um, others subside and go away. But um, what we know from a public health perspective, it's very important to track the emergence of variants via genomic sequencing and monitor the clinical impact, the potential impact on therapies such as monoclonal antibodies, the potential impact on vaccines, potential impact on reinfections, and the potential impact on diagnostic testing. So um, this, is, this slide just goes through the sort of anatomy of the spike protein, which will then inform the discussion about why the variants have become so important um, clinically. So I mentioned before the re receptor binding domain. We also have the N-terminal binding domain, and both of these are located at the top of the spike protein, which is where the spike protein binds to that ACE2 receptor that I mentioned earlier. And the variants actually have mutations in the receptor binding domain and in the N-terminal binding domain. And what these mutations do is they can change the shape of the tip of the spike protein, the charge of the spike protein, and they can change the avidity with which the spike protein 
actually binds to the host cells. So I wanna just turn to the figure for one second. So this is the sequence, and um, this is where the nucleotide binding domain is, and that is represented in blue. And then the, um, you, you can see that in this side, this is sort of the closed state, the resting state of, of the spike protein. The green part of the figure is the um, receptor binding domain, and again, in the resting state. What happens, and this is actually um, something that a lot of viruses do, when the virus goes to bind to the host cell, it actually, the spike protein changes its configuration and it sort of thrusts out the nucleotide, um, the receptor binding domain and the end terminal binding domain, which is what makes mutations here in, the, in these um, different parts of the spike protein so, so important when we start to think about the variants. So um, there have been three variants that have been um, really of particular interest and importance that emerge first. Um, and I wanna bring up this concept of convergent evolution, which means that all of these variants arose at, in different parts of the globe and they um, have very, very similar mutations. So the B117, is the one that first caught our attention emerged in the United Kingdom. And it's not important to memorize what the different key mutations are, but rather notice that the B117, the P1 in Brazil that went to Japan, just parenthetically, the largest Japanese community outside of Japan is in Brazil. There was a huge immigration to Brazil from Japan. And B1351, from South Africa all have very similar mutations. The D614G, the 501Y, and the 484K um, variant. So each of these mutations confer something that changes the clinical implications, the clinical manifestations. For example, the D614G leads to increased transmissibility and may increase the risk of severe disease and death. 501Y leads to increased transmissibility by more avid binding to the ACE2 receptor. And 484 um, impairs protection from antibodies. And I'll say a little bit more about the source of those um, antibodies in a moment. And um, altogether, when you have those mutations all clustering together, such as we saw here with the South African variant, they may be um, less responsive to some vaccines. So what are the source of the antibodies that have led us to understand the um, decreased effectiveness of neutralization by certain antibodies? So antibodies that neutralize the virus arise following COVID-19 disease. And this can be studied by studies of convalescent plasma. We mentioned the monoclonal antibody therapies that are used for people who have milder disease, who have a risk of severe disease due to their comorbidities. And then of course, following vaccination. And what we've learned is that the variants actually are arising 
under the selective pressure from the antibodies. And you can actually see this in an individual. There are some very vivid case reports of immunocompromised people who are infected and have COVID-19 that over time their virus mutates to become a variant as they're trying to make antibodies to control the virus. Or of course, in large populations when people are still getting infected. And so what we know is that there have been evidence that specifically for the monoclonal antibody therapies, that um, especially when there's only one, in, not a cocktail of monoclonal antibodies, that mutations in the N-terminal binding domain may render that monoclonal antibody therapy not good at all. And then similarly, when there are mutations in the RBD, the receptor binding domain, um, the monoclonal antibody therapy may be less good. Um, so it's important um, that we monitor this very, very closely so that we um, can provide effective therapies. So CDC um, recently came out with a classification scheme for the variants that reflects a very, very active monitoring program being conducted by the CDC, as well as local um, health department laboratories and research laboratories. So the variant classifications are threefold of interest, of concern, and of high consequence. And they are divided by their potential impact on human health. Um, and so um, for the variants that are of interest, these variants contain genetic markers that are predicted to affect transmission, potentially diagnosis, therapy like the monoclonal antibodies and immune response, and or um, are a cause of an increased proportion of cases or unique clusters and outbreaks, and then um, have so far limited prevalence or evidence of US expansion. So the most vivid example of that, which is in the United States, is actually here in New York, where, where I work, where um, researchers at Columbia and um, at our health department have found the B1526 and the B1525, which emerged in um, November and December. And um, we're following these very closely because they contain that 484 mutation that I previously mentioned. The of concern variants are those that have already evidence of an impact on diagnosis, treatment, vaccination, and decreased neutralization by antibodies. Um, and so I've already talked to you about the B117 from the United Kingdom, the P1 from Brazil, the B135 from South Africa, but there are also to emerging variants in California that you may not be as familiar with, B1427 and B1429. And then finally, and obviously most worrisome, are the variants of high consequence. And thus far, there are no variants that have emerged that are of high consequence. And these are variants that have clear evidence that are prevention measures or medical countermeasures, such as vaccination, significantly have reduced effectiveness. Um, so clearly, um, this is very worrisome, but variants of high consequence 
would um, represent variants that were causing much more severe clinical disease and increased hospitalizations. So if you go to the CDC website, you can see the impact of this widespread monitoring as we look across the United States at the emergence of the different variants. So this is the map of B117, and you can see that um, Florida, Michigan, and California thus far have the largest number of cases. Um, and these data um, change every single day because the sequencing often lags behind the actual case presentation, as you can imagine. Um, here's P1, markedly less, um, more in um, the Northwest, and, and you can see the states that are affected. And then finally, um, the B135 variant, which is that South African variant. So in summary, I can't emphasize enough how much vaccination can reduce the emergence of variants. If we vaccinate people, then we reduce the number of cases. So there's no opportunity for the variants to emerge. And thus far, um, the vaccines are protective against the variants and against severe disease, which is very, very crucial. Um, we, believe that the same protective measures that we're using, masks, social distancing, hand hygiene, are um, working against the current variants. But clearly, some variants are associated with more transmissibility, worse illness, and evasion of neutralizing antibody. So ongoing sequence-based surveillance, laboratory studies, and obviously epidemiologic investigations are crucial as we work so hard together to end this pandemic. So thank you so much for your attention. Dr. Saman, thank you again for that invaluable information. As a quick reminder, you can read the newsletter or listen to the podcast of Dr. Saman's E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, COVID-19 Special Edition, by clicking on the link in the resource list window on ON24 or going to eCysticFibrosisReview.org. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.